0: Okay, guys, so we are live. This is season four. Super excited about these cases, especially the first two. Um, I can't think of any that I don't like, except one, the third episode's probably going to make us mad on what the verdict was, but some really, really good stuff. So I guess we'll just get started with intros, and, uh, and we'll dive in. I'll kind of give a little bit of how this season's going to be different because we're having to do it remotely, Um, but let's go ahead and introduce ourselves, and then we'll get into all those details.
1: I'm Mom. I'm Elena. And fabulous
2: sister. Fabulous. I'm the fabulous mother.
1: It's not about you right now. I
2: think so. It's always about me. Go ahead, Shay.
0: Continue. Go ahead. And I'm Sherry. This is Outline of a Murder. And, you know, m- mom knows where you take a sick boat. Where? To the dock. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you should have known that. I don't know why you didn't know that. <laughs> All right, so... Um, I, don't know. I don't. Now with your chewing and your package wrapper, do you think that maybe you could take the food item out of the package wrapper so that when we get into the case we don't hear it? I eaten all. So
2: put
0: it on top of it. That's good. Okay. All right.
2: Sorry, Jerry.
0: Oh, it's all right okay so like i said this season's a little bit different (laughs) this season's a little bit different because we're doing it remote due to unforeseen circumstances we were not able to record as usual and uh, so now we are um, doing it by zoom so i'm gonna have lots of video content of their shenanigans and uh, because you know i'm the good kid i usually don't have shenanigans (laughs)
2: <laughs> I'm not a grin. And then, oh, <laughs> um, why would I do that?
0: Now, for those that are looking at the video, you'll notice we've got our shirts on. And uh, so, even though this will mm-hmm. drop Halloween, got mine as well, this will drop Halloween of uh, 2023. The shirts should be available before then. Uh, So hopefully if you did not know that and you hear this, you'll pause this episode and go get your shirt at outlineofamurder.com. And also. And. Yes.
2: When we were coming from our trip, I had three or four compliments on this shirt. But failed to. Promote it. (laughs) Because I was so happy to get the compliment.
0: (laughs) I yes I, I put them on
2: the last thing right yeah it to
0: you. yeah yeah they're uh mm-hmm. i think they're pretty nice or comfortable it just has our tagline be smart be rude don't be a victim i'm saying that so they remember but they can just look down if they forget at the end and um so they are soft mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we've got that we've got some stickers that are coming up so um you guys will have some Okay, so let's try this for a third time. So I'm okay. super excited about this case. Uh, I've kept the cases pretty close to the vest. So you're probably going to have some questions and you're going to have some insight. And I'm really excited about it. But this case is nuts. And like I was saying before, you know, I was cut off again, that it's one of my favorite cases. And I first watched it on uh, Paula On. And when I watched, I was like, oh my gosh, we absolutely have to do this case. And what I like about it is obviously the material, uh, you know, the subject matter is a sad situation, but how this case is solved is absolutely phenomenal. And it's like one of those feel good stories, but there's also a lot of twists and there's a lot of turns. So I think it's going to be exciting for you guys. I think you're going to like it. Um... Now, this case is all the way back in 1982. The victim's name is Lee Rotatori. So she, um, let's see, she was born in 49. So that would have put her at, what, 33 years old, I believe, um, when she was uh, murdered. And uh, she was born September 29th, 1949 in North Dakota, and she had, um, you know, s- several siblings. Uh, even though she was born there, she was actually raised in Rochester, Minnesota. So you know, just a like a, soda, like a, you know, just like a small town. They seem like a very normal family. Um, well, I don't know if it's a small town, but just that you know, middle America type feel. And uh, she did get married uh, twice, and the first time she was married to a man named Anthony Rotatori, that was in November of 1970, and they had a son named Michael. And then later, they moved to Rockford, Illinois, which I've never been to, but the marriage ended in September of 77, so they were married about seven years. Now, during this time, or not long after the divorce, I'm not sure because it's an old case she went to the University of Wisconsin and she earned her bachelor's degree in dietary services and a master's in food nutrition. And she, I mean, like super smart. She was quiet, but very friendly. She loved animals. She had two friends named Bob and Clark Fisher that said she was a farm girl at heart. So, you know, just getting the picture of a a real down-to-earth individual Um, you know, loved animals, loved people. Uh, she had at, uh, that time when she was living in Wisconsin, she had a horse, chickens, a dog, a couple of pigs and a turkey. And so she kept all of her animals at the Clarks' farm and she'd go to work, you know, work there. She'd tend to her animals frequently. And then she also had a garden on the farm that she would work. And, uh, um, the detective who investigated the case later said he could not find one single person who did not like her. And let me show you a picture of her. Um, let's That's see. pretty
2: rare, too. It mm-hmm.
0: is rare. Yeah. Find
2: one person.
0: Okay. So this is an early picture of her. Can you guys see? Yeah. Yeah. So she was real pretty. Uh, and then this is her later on. Um, probably mm-hmm. closer to the time of her death. But I'm assuming that that's probably a senior picture. Looks yeah. like one. hmm Okay. And uh, so, you know, again, a really nice person. After she got done with college, she went to work at Unicare Health Facilities in Wisconsin. And they created food programs for hospitals. And she got to travel for her work. She didn't mind traveling. She seemed to like it. And then eventually, after that job, she started working for Servicemaster. and this is a Chicago-based company, but she worked for the uh, Minneapolis division. And her very first assignment was at Hackley Hospital in Muskegon, Wisconsin. And then at some point during this time frame and you'll want to remember this guy's name she married a Jerry Nimke. August 15th of 78. So she divorces in 77 and then she remarries in 78 in Madison, Wisconsin. Now her and Jerry, I know. And that seems to be the case. I mean, I've noticed it where people divorce and they're instantly like within a few weeks, few months, maybe a year, maybe they start dating someone. And like we've talked about, so this is just an FYI for our listeners. That that is just too soon, and your brain is seeking someone who um is familiar to what you left typically, and also we our deepest uh, need as humans is to belong and to be accepted. And uh, so I think that's part of it, you know, is when people divorce, they're alone, they want companionship, and then if they're not careful, their brain will find someone that's like their previous husband or wife. Now, I don't know if this was a case with him, but as we'll later learn, he he was actually a convicted murderer, and she had no idea. Um, and people
2: settle, too. They just settle.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the brain likes familiar because if it has to adapt to new things or change, it's a lot of work for it. So it'll Mm -hmm. just go into what's familiar. Now, interestingly, they marry in 78 and then they divorce in 79. So obviously, I mean, that to me says a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. like something's wrong there. Um, I don't know if he was abusive. I don't know, you know, if maybe they just couldn't get along and there was no abuse at all. But then they remarried. Uh, I don't know if it was two years later because I couldn't get any of the the months and the days. Uh, But I did get the date for the remarriage, which was December 30th, 1981. Uh, So what, maybe divorced a year and a half to a year, uh, if that. And then six months later, she's dead. But don't come to any conclusions. I think it's going to surprise you.
2: I know where I'm going with it. <laughs> right. Very.
0: Yeah. Usually the husband does it. You know what I'm saying? Or the wife. Yeah. hmm Okay. Now the murder. Um, so at the time of her death, um, Lee and her husband, Jerry Nemke, they were living in Nunica, Michigan? I mean, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but they lived in a trailer park with her now 11-year-old son, Michael. Jerry worked at a gas station, and then he also delivered flowers part-time, which is going to be another important point. And uh, the flower shop was uh, located in Grand Haven. Lee learned of an opportunity to work at a larger hospital, the Jenny Edmondson Hospital in Iowa, so she applied for a transfer. And uh, so she first went to Council Bluffs, which I've been there, Um, I'm assuming it's close to this hospital, and she wanted to look around, see if she would like it, and she fell in love with it immediately. So she rehomed her dog, which made me sad, Um, and then she went to Council Bluffs Monday, June 21st to begin her orientation. The plan was for her husband and her son to get there soon. So, I mean, to me, leaving your son with your husband, I would think that because he's a stepdad, she would have to trust him to some degree. You know what I mean? So, uh, and then they were going to later bring their mobile home there and live in a trailer park in Council, uh, Council Bluffs. Now, Lee, you know, she's not been there long, but she's already getting along really, really well with her co-workers. And then on uh, Thursday, the departing food manager. So uh, Lee was going to take that position and a few other employees invite her out to be on the boat. And so and their families joined them. And so they're like, you know, spending a few hours on the boat on Lake Manawa. And they enjoyed the lake until uh, dusk time. And so after that fun excursion with her new friends, Lee took the South Expressway to the hotel that she had been staying at. It was a Best Western Motor Lodge, and it was right next to the Interstate 2980. Now, I know that most hotels are located next to interstates. Um, I mean, that's just the way it works. But there's several cases of crimes that are committed at hotels that are next to interstates and uh, so you know think of that as far as safety if you're going to stay at one of those that's on a major interstate make sure that the room you're put in is safe you know make sure there's security make sure you park under light make sure that you look you know around and and you're aware of your surroundings i remember when i was in florida i was actually at a hotel that was off the interstate it was um i wouldn't say well i guess it was probably downtown pensacola and what i didn't like is at night they would lock the front doors and so Mm -hmm. i'm in a series of meetings and i'm not getting there until like 10 or 11 o'clock and uh, so what i would do is the door was on the side and It was lit, but not, you know, super bright. And then, so like if I'm, the hotel's here, I go around the left side of it. And then there was a bunch of bushes and shrubbery along Mm -hmm. the back and side. And that's so dangerous. I mean, I understand people do that, you know, for the decorations, make it look nice. But to me, that's a place for a predator to, you know, position himself or herself. So what I would do is I would drive and I, it may sound, you know, ridiculous, but I'm a single, you know, I'm a single person, you know, I don't have friends with me. I don't have, you know, my spouse with me. I don't have anybody with me. And so I would drive along the, um, shrub line with my lights on bright and make sure no one was there and then at the time, my car, you know, I could have the key come out of the fob. And so I'd have it ready with the, you know, it between my fingers. That way, if I if I have to punch somebody, they're going to get hurt. And then, um, you know, I would get inside, you know, and then I'd have to walk up a stairwell. So the whole thing did not make me feel very safe. And uh, I always
2: like to park. I always like to park right up front. And I asked for a room by the office.
0: Yeah, in this case, that wouldn't have helped me because they locked the front doors. So I would have had to walk farther uh, to get in through the front. So, you know, if anybody who manages a hotel listens to this, you know, maybe just consider the safety of your guests, especially the females that are by themselves. And be alert, you know, if you're the one that's traveling and you have to get in a situation like that. Because, you know, Ted Bundy, guys, seriously got one of his victims at a hotel.
2: It's funny, a lot of those things go back. We've done to Ted, Ted Bundy one way or another.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean,
2: he just covered everything. He
0: mm-hmm. yeah. did. <laughs> You're funny. Okay. So the hotels. Do what?
2: I am pretty funny.
0: Yes. Yes. Thank you. So the hotel's location later became a concern for the detectives because. It meant that the killer could, quote, be five feet away or 5,000 miles or 1,000 miles away. You know, it was very easy to get in, do the the killing, and then get out. And this was Sergeant Larry Williams of Council Bluffs PD. So the next day, you know, she, she goes through her orientation. The next day is her official starting day, and she didn't show up. She had made such a strong impression on her coworkers that they knew immediately something was wrong. You know, I mean, she yeah. just came off as that person. That there's no way she wouldn't call in. There's no way she wouldn't show up. And then she was obviously very intelligent. I mean, with her background, she um, had a high work ethic. And they could see that. And she was very enthusiastic to start her new job. So her boss was concerned. And kudos to this boss. Mm-hmm. I, I've been listening to a true crime garage case where the manager leaves to get sandwiches for all of her staff and doesn't show up five hours later with them, doesn't show up the next day because she's been killed probably by someone on her staff. But I would think that if my boss says they're going to be right back, they took my money to get my lunch and they don't show up, that might be a cause for concern. So I'd be alarmed. Exactly. Well, at first I'd be irritated. like. What's taking food? Yeah. It's like, hey, I'm getting famished here, you know. But who wouldn't be naturally? Where are they? Exactly. Yeah. Unless I mean, weird. I mean, that case is crazy. We might actually do that. I think that would be a good case um that would fit within our purposes as far as a very hostile work environment that ended up with her being killed. Um so the boss is concerned. Kudos to her boss. He called the hotel and requested that they go check on her. And when the staff entered, they found her dead on her bed. And um, I uh, was able to find uh, some like drawings, I believe, of the crime scene. But uh, I don't have those. Basically, when you walk in... And I think the bed was to the right, or it might have been like right in front, a little bit to the right, but she was laying on her bed almost like she was asleep. So at first they didn't realize that she was dead. Um, But they noticed several things. The first thing they noticed is that Lee had purchased one meal, which obviously was probably for herself from McDonald's after she left the boating excursion with her friends. So she leaves, she goes to McDonald's, she gets her meal. She's lying face up on the bed, and her pajamas are soaked in blood. So once they got closer, they saw all of the blood. Her autopsy revealed that she had a single stab wound uh, to the heart from the front. She also had been dead about 12 hours. So that would put her time of death very closely to when she got back to the hotel. So it's like, okay, was the meal already eaten and the wrappers were left, or did she even have a chance to eat her meal? I don't know. Yeah,
2: That's sort of odd, just one stab wound.
0: Not I so know, easy,
2: but right to the heart. So, what does There's that tell you, guys?
0: Like the personal. single stab wound to the heart, not a whole bunch of not a whole bunch of stabbing. What does that tell you?
2: She but, hurt somebody.
0: There was no rage. Um, very like
1: quick, get the job done. And I'm wondering if she was asleep.
0: Exactly. It's like, does she eat and she's asleep and someone comes in? Um, but it sounds very impersonal.
2: Yeah. Well, if someone came in, it had to be someone with the hotel. Mm
0: -hmm. Not necessarily. I mean, you can have. have That had a key. Possible. If Um,
2: she was asleep. Maybe.
0: Yeah. If she was asleep, but she may not have been asleep and she may have answered the door. I mean, we're in 1982. So, yeah. you know, people weren't as concerned with their safety as I I would think that they are now. You know, they don't open the door for strangers, especially at hotels. Um, mm. Now, it did appear that, well, some reports said she was sexually assaulted, but I could not find out why people were saying that. Her pajamas are on. I couldn't find any official documents that said she was sexually assaulted. All I could find is that she died of that single, uh, you know, knife stab. They also noticed pieces of green foam, like you see in flower arrangements, on the floor. Jerry. um, Hotel personnel did not see her enter her ground floor room which uh, were located in the general vicinity of the doors that go to the hotel's meeting room, meeting rooms and pool. There was no signs of forced entry. It did not appear to be a burglary because the room was not ransacked, but her purse with her ID and some jewelry was taken. So what that means is they don't think that was the motive. They don't think robbery was a motive, but after she was killed, They just went ahead and grabbed her purse and grabbed some jewelry.
2: Might be like a feeble, uh, you know, to try to make it look like a robbery.
0: I think if that was the case, there would have been some ransacking.
2: Yeah, that's true.
0: But maybe not, you know, it's like, oh, there's a purse, you know, I'll make it look this way. So, I mean, so far what we've got uh, and according to Sergeant Williams, he said it was a very unique crime. That was his word, unique. It's like we've got a very impersonal murder. We've got the green foam like you would find in flower arrangements. So what I'm thinking is that that is how the the perpetrator got in the room. They used a flower delivery as a way mm-hmm. to get her to open the door is what I'm thinking. Which she might expect from her husband. Right. So this is just where my mind is going. Um, I can't prove it. It was never proven actually. But I think, you know, like why else would there be the green foam on the floor? You know, she didn't buy flowers for herself. There were no flowers left in the room either.
1: Oh, that's strange then.
0: Well, if that was the ruse to get her to open the door, of course, they are going to take the flowers so that people don't know how they got her to open the door, because it may tie back to the perpetrator. That's true. Yeah.
2: But they didn't really check very well. There was foam on her. Must have been really quick.
0: Uh, The foam was on the carpet.
2: You'd look all over the place for
0: any kind of anything, I would think. What do you mean they didn't check her very well? I'm confused.
2: But when he killed her, or whoever killed her, didn't check well, you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: make sure they cleaned up everything. Uh
2: huh. But you uh know that
0: green foam. I mean, it gets everywhere, it's like glitter. I don't even, I mean, the only way I think that they could actually get all the green foam is if they vacuum the room. And it's
2: hard to see, I mean, depending on the color of the carpet. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the 80s, it
0: was probably green. Probably green. Yeah. So then uh, police captain Eldon Jones said it was, quote, the most perplexing case I've had the opportunity to be involved with. So six detectives immediately went to work. Three organizations immediately set up a reward to help find the killer. On June 30th, five days later, police chief Ed DeNovo reported that the Michigan State uh, Police Post in Grand Haven was helping with the investigation and they were checking into her background. So they're trying to, you know, investigate from there. They're trying to investigate in Iowa and see if they can find anyone that would want her dead. And they found out some very interesting things. So obviously, you know, in any crime, they start with the people that are closest to the victim, right? So you work your way out. They um, immediately hone in on Jerry. He was still in Michigan with Michael, the son. And they dis- discovered some very disturbing details about Jerry Nimke He had been sentenced to death
2: for Ooh.
0: for murder when he was 17 years old. Wow. And she had no idea, as far as I, I could tell.
2: Most people back then don't investigate when They start dating someone,
0: right? So, why is he, he out?
2: Some kind of signs of his violence, though, so, wouldn't you?
0: Maybe I couldn't up. find anything that said that he had been violent. Um, but what I find interesting, my immediate question is, why was he out walking the streets if yeah. he got a death penalty conviction? So, did you
1: find out who he killed?
0: Yeah, uh, okay. he, he had gone on a date with 16-year-old Marilyn Duncan in Chicago. He ended up beating her so bad on the date that she was in a coma, she never woke up, and she died. He was tried, convicted, sentenced to death. Also, every report I read mentioned three other women that he murdered, or three total, but I could not find any information on the other women. I could never confirm that there were other murders. So here are the details. The evidence is undisputed that Marilyn Duncan was 16 years old, and this is from the court records, in good health and working as a waitress on April 29, 1960, when she was last seen with the defendant after 9 p.m. on that date, and that she was found unconscious by police officers at 8 a.m. the following day, lying along the Northwestern Railroad, behind a factory at 5802 Northwest Highway in Chicago. She was found barely alive in a pool of blood and with extensive injuries about the head and chest. A pair of sunglasses, a fifth gallon of 593 bottle of wine, and three bricks were found a few feet from her body. She was removed to a hospital where she died without regaining consciousness on May 1, 1960. The victim's wallet contained a photo stack copy of the birth certificate of defendant's sister, was found on May 2nd, 1960, about 50 to 75 yards where her body had been found. So basically, it it seems that in this young girl's wallet, she had a copy of the birth certificate of Nimke's sister.
1: That's weird.
0: Yeah, and I don't know why, but... For whatever reason, it was in her wallet. So I'm wondering if maybe him and his sister were friends. You know, is that how he got, she got the birth certificate? Maybe she was going to do a favor and make a copy of it for the sister? Like, I don't know, but it was in her wallet. So then that led them to Jerry Nimke. So he you was You know, that
2: much violence, though, you would think anyone dating him or marrying him after a year would know.
0: That he's I mean, violent.
2: violent. I wouldn't think you could just hide that.
0: I don't either. Uh, and after now, the first if, date. Yeah,
2: after the first date. Yeah,
0: first date with this guy. So let's see. In the sixties, he was seventeen. The wife is murdered twenty-three years later. So that would put him around forty. He's still going to be young enough, and you know, active and mm-hmm. strong at that age. He's not going to be an old man at this point. So I, th- I personally don't see how there wasn't any physical abuse. Right. Yeah.
1: That's very violent. And two different. Right? Oh, they're two totally different murders.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: they opposite.
0: Yeah.
2: I don't know. But the fact that he got out is just crazy. Yeah. A death row.
0: Yeah, well, they they go into that. So uh, they arrest him on the same day. They brought him to the police station about 530 and they turned him over to the detectives. They then questioned the defendant about the Duncan case until about 730 p.m., during which time he said that he knew Marilyn Duncan and admitted ownership of the sunglasses, but personally denied harming her and a partial written statement protesting his innocence was prepared. The taking of this statement was interrupted at 730 by the arrival of Chief of Detectives McMahon, who took over the questioning along with the defendant. At about 820, McMahon called Captain Dealey, Sergeant Murphy, and Detective Jack into the room to verify a story of the defendant admitting guilt. Now, so here's the scenario. Now, this is in the 60s and um, encouraging suspects. <laughs> To admit to a crime was pretty common. I mean, they, they would use violent means. Okay. Let's do this. Let's do this. So we're back live after my computer basically seemed to explode yesterday. So for our listeners, if this first episode sounds a little bit disjointed, that's because it is. <laughs> and I <laughs> and I do not want to start over because we had gotten quite a ways in. And uh, so here it is 24 hours later, and we're going to attempt to finish room 106 and then maybe one or two uh, um, after that. So we'll see. We'll talk about that, see what you have time for. But where I stopped off yesterday um, before the computer literally shut down, I didn't even know if it was going to start again, is we were talking about Jerry Nimke. And how he was arrested for the murder of Marilyn Duncan when he was 17. She was 16. And <clears throat> the defendant, the you know, the suspect initially denied that he had anything to do with her murder. But then after having a private meeting with one of the policemen, he changed his statement to guilty. So we were discussing, you know, back in the 60s, I mean, it was a whole different show. I mean, they would beat you. They would withhold some of your rights from you just to get a confession. Now, I think it's probably less just because they have like the audio, they have the video, you know, like they don't want these cases thrown out. But back then, people just had a blind eye to it. So, I mean, the fact that He was the last one with her. I'm going to say he probably did it. But the fact that he said he didn't and then he was forced to say he did potentially makes me have a little bit of doubt. Like I can't be 100% certain.
1: Did you find out, and it was just so violent, so if he did kill his wife, which we'll get to that, those are polar opposites. I question that. Did you find out any information about him getting out? Because I have a theory.
0: Well, so what happened is, um, so it was the chief of detectives, McMahon, who took over the questioning of uh, Nimke, and he did it alone, so there were no other cops in the room, at 8.20, McMahon called Captain Dealey, Sergeant Murphy, and Detective Jack back into the room to verify a story of the defendant admitting guilt. And then at 8.30 p.m., the defendant was taken to the state state's attorney's office where he gave and signed two written statements confessing his guilt. He then had his clothes taken from him, was returned to the station about 1 30 a.m. on May 3rd of 1960. And then from there he was taken to the scene of the crime where he purportedly reenacted it. But I would love to get my hands on the confession because, you know, one of the the things with false confession, unless they feed you the details, you know, they're not going to get how the person died right. They're not going to get the location right. They're not going to get those things right. Uh, Or they may guess right on one thing or two things, but everything else is wrong. And so detectives that get tunnel vision will often feed the, you know, try again, brother. It wasn't, you know, a stabbing. Well, you can just go through the list, right? So I would love to get my hands on those confessions to see if it even matched the crime scene, matched the death, et cetera. Because what if, like, if we go back up here So she was seen with the defendant after nine, and then she was found unconscious by police officers at eight the next day. Well, I mean, what if someone else did it to her? Now, the only thing that makes me lean toward the fact that he's guilty, it's the sunglasses. Remember, the sunglasses that were found at the crime scene were his. So that, the wine. So I'm definitely leaning on the side that he's guilty, but just the way police were at the time makes me nervous saying a hundred percent. So it appears he wasn't read his rights and that's what got him off. There were also some other procedural uh, errors. So the Illinois Supreme court overturned his conviction two years later, but here's what's interesting. And I saw you about to say something. So you want to say it before I go the next. Well,
1: the, uh... The beating was so violent. He would have had marks on his hands.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, unless he used an object, like they found the three uh, bricks at her feet. But you would think there would that's be some true. type of wounding. I mean, bricks are rough too. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. my goodness. Yeah. I forgot to mm-hmm. say mom's not with us because on top of oh. my computer blowing up yesterday. Oh, my Apple pencil died. Um, Mom has a cold. So we just got back from Greece oh. Wednesday, and uh, and so she wasn't able to join us today, even though she was uh, with us yesterday. So now he's retried, he's found guilty again, and he's sentenced to seventy five years in prison. So that would put us approximately year nineteen sixty two to nineteen sixty four. He married Lee in 78, so that means he served less than 15 years of his 75-year sentence for brutal murder.
1: How do you get retried for the same crime? Well, I don't think you could do that.
0: Oh, yeah. So if you're found guilty, not if you're innocent. So if you are found not guilty, you cannot be tried again. Huh. But if you've been found guilty, gotcha. procedural, you know things overturn it, then they can try you again. But I just don't know how he got out, and the family must have been devastated that you get a seventy-five year sentence and you're let out in fifteen years. He also had escaped youth camp um, during that time. Uh, so, I mean, before that, so he had to have been in some type of trouble before he murdered Marilyn to be in a youth camp because it was one of those youth camps for troubled kids, and he escaped Uh, it. So he definitely, the dude's got a background, right? So, and then the green stuff that was found at the crime scene, you've got him working part-time as a flower delivery guy. And like I said um, yesterday, I feel like, that was the ruse to get her to open the door. So you can imagine she seems to be happily married. I mean, they married once, divorced, married again. Um, you know, there's a knock on the door. It's a flower, flower delivery. And she might've thought, Oh, how nice, you know, Jerry sent me flowers, maybe as a congratulations for a new job or I miss you or whatever. But I really believe that is how the killer got into her room. Um, But her husband wouldn't have needed to disguise himself. So it couldn't have been him that did the actual killing because he wouldn't have had to disguise himself as a flower guy. So maybe he showed up with flowers and she opened the door. So that's what I thought. But that was not the case, um, which I'll get to in a second. So then, of course, they learn, you know, that they had been divorced and then they remarried. And so... The detectives are wondering why. You know, was he violent, especially with his history? Was it like typical marriage problems? But they couldn't find out anything, and I couldn't find out anything either. I mean, I looked and looked, and I just couldn't find anything that showed if he was violent in their marriage, which sucks. Because, you know, that's what our show's about, obviously.
1: Yeah, the flags.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there has to be... Some, I mean, I don't see how you can violently murder at the age of 17 and not be violent at least at in some level. Okay. Well, so to me, that just points
1: that he didn't do it.
0: And you mentioned yesterday that's such a violent crime against Marilyn. I mean, it's a brutal beating on a first date, it sounds like. I mean, it wasn't even, you know, they didn't know each other for a long time. They weren't boyfriend and girlfriend. It didn't appear. And then he just violently murders her. That's someone that obviously has an, you know, an anger issue to be able to attack someone like that. But at the age of 17, I mean, that's really, I think, a rare occurrence even today.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I'm doubting that he did that murder.
0: I don't know. I just think the sunglasses tie on there. Um, so I'm going to lean toward that way. But like you, I've got some doubts. And I wish we had the uh, case documents where we could go over it. So the detectives then wondered if it was tied to a, if the, the victim was, was tied to a similar murder in the area less than three months earlier in Iowa. So this was 21-year-old Linda Mayfield. She was a black woman that was stabbed to death at the Starlight Motel April 9th. Police were called to the motel due to a disturbance with a man and a knife. And when they arrived, they found her dead with stab wounds to her face, chest, stomach, hand, and foot. And the suspect was... Between uh, 26 to 28 years old, about 5'7 to 5'10, clean shaven, and wearing a blue jean jacket and a light pullover uh, shirt with some type of emblem on it. But the witnesses noticed that he had a lot of body hair, uh, and it came up over his shirt collar. (sighs) (laughs) That's just, uh, that's disgusting. Sorry if anyone's listening to us and they have that issue, but... Guys, shave. You know, do whatever you need to do.
1: Or laser, let's take care of business. Ladies should
0: have no hair coming up out of their shirt collar. They also heard his name <laughs> called, and it was Chris. Now, here's what fascinates me on this one. It is rare. Well, I, maybe I shouldn't use the term rare. Um, typically, if you have a murder, especially a serial killing, they stay within their own race. Um, but I wouldn't put it past, you know, uh, a white person killing a black person, black person killing a white person. But in the type of crime that we're discussing here with this black woman that was killed and the body hair coming over the, the shirt collar, more than likely the perpetrator is white because, um, I've not ever met, you know what I mean? Like the, the body hair is not typically yeah. common, it seems, in the black race versus white race, especially like maybe Italian. Um, I think they tend to have that. Um, so that's unusual to me. But also what is different and stands out is the fact that that lady was stabbed multiple times. So, right. you know, when we look at Lee, it was the one. Yeah. And like you said, there wasn't like, it, it's not like an anger crime. Right. Where this one seems like an anger crime. Uh,
1: Oh, for sure.
0: Now, um, the detective's dead end after dead end. Her case goes cold. And uh, now we're in 2001. So that was 1982. We're in 2001. Here's where the story takes the neatest turn. But then I got a couple more twists that you're going to be like, what on earth? Okay. All right. So. Let's do that. So excited. All right. Crime (laughs) techs found male DNA at the crime scene. And they developed a profile, which I found interesting. Like, where did the DNA have to be for them to know it was a perpetrator? Because she's in a hotel room.
1: And they found it on the crime or in the crime scene, not on her.
0: I don't know where they found it. I just think that it had to be somewhere where they could, without a doubt, tie it to the crime. Because, you know, if you're in a hotel, there's going to be tons of DNA. But back then in the 80s, DNA was I don't even know if they had DNA testing yet in 82. It was developed in the 80s. I don't think they had testing, so they may not have swabbed all of the hotel room, they may have just swabbed the areas they knew were for sure tied to the crime. Yeah. Thank goodness. I mean, it always amazes me when I watch, um, you know, crime shows where before there was even DNA, before people even knew how important that was, detectives were swabbing and they were collecting. You know, I've even heard some detectives say, I didn't know what I was going to do with that, but I knew it was important. And so I swabbed it. I mean, it's just amazing, you know, their intuition. So they have this DNA, they have the profile, they enter it into all of the DNA databases. There was no match. And they did it repeatedly over the years. So this is 2001. um, And they just kept getting the same results all the way up into 2019. In 2019... They submitted the DNA profile to Parabon uh, Nano Labs, and I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's a Virginia-based business, and they help law enforcement basically get a face of the killer. It's very interesting. They use the DNA um, and genetic genealogy, like to get eye color. You know, like all of us have had. If you've had a DNA test, you know, it tells you your eye color. It tells you if you have dimples. It tells you the color of your hair. Is it going to be curly and straight? Where your origin is? Blah, 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 blah. And uh, so they take it to them. They learned that the killer was a white man of northern European heritage. But, I mean, the majority of people in America at that time were of northern European heritage. So it didn't narrow it down. so then they submitted the dna to 23andme which is where i got my dna tested and yeah.
1: and you have you done yours too Not yet. dusty's done his i hadn't done mine yet. so cool and jade's done oh so,
0: yeah is it the privacy issue because you're a very private person hmm? a little bit okay <laughs> i want to submit mine to um like criminal databases for the very reason of this story. That way they can trace people through the family line. But then I was like, man, is are there like some criminals in my family? But, okay, so um, they were able through 23andMe to match the man to distant cousins. It was like the sixth to the eighth cousins. That really wasn't helpful. Uh, Parabon told them, quote, the probability of finding your person is slim to none, And so they're, you know, again at a dead end. And so they decided to wait um, for additional DNA kits to be added to the genealogy databases because that was fairly new in 2019 that would someday hopefully produce a suspect. But a young 20-year-old named Eric Schubert, a whiz kid, changed all of that. This kid is so cool. Okay, so Eric made national headlines When he helped police solve a 57-year-old rape and murder of a 9-year-old Maris Ann Chivarella, I think is how you say. Her name is one of the most notorious murders in PA. Um, And... She, it was March 18th, 1964. She was taking a can of uh, cans of pears and beets to Sister Josephine for like a teacher's feast day, feast day at St. Joseph's Pericule School in Hazleton, PA. Um, normally, she wasn't alone, but her mom felt comfortable. It was a very safe neighborhood. You know, she didn't worry about her, especially, you know, in 64. And uh, she disappeared. Um, it was supposed to be a 10-minute walk, never found and then at one a man with his teenage nephew he was teaching him how to drive and uh they went to an abandoned strip mine which is a great place to learn to drive. I remember uh my stepmother took me out on dirt roads, you know, to learn how to drive. So was doing, uh, Cow pasture. <laughs> and um they thought they saw what appeared to be a doll on a pile of trash. It ended up being the little girl. Um I I won't go into the details cuz I want to be careful, but she had been sexually assaulted and strangled. They investigate everyone. I mean, even the priest, you know, um, was a suspect. And over 230 police worked her case. I mean, they were just trying to find who did this. Yeah. And her murder book was over 4,700 pages. So they, they did their due diligence. They never solved it. Her parents died never knowing who killed their little girl. Uh, she wanted to be a nun when she grew up. And her brother remembered, you know, when they were told. He said the house was in chaos. Um, people screaming, crying, rolling around literally on the floor. Um, some of the aunts were doing this because of the horror. And he said his mother was totally in shock. The family doctor was there and had to give her a sedative. And his father was like a, a zombie. So, I mean, it just, you know, was absolutely devastating. Well, Eric is a freshman history major, major, okay, at Elizabethtown College, which is about 80 miles away. Yeah, so he's a history major. And he read about the case. Right. It's like, I don't know. I mean, me and you like history and true crime.
1: Yes, but I wouldn't say that we're whizzes. Oh, no. With
0: true crime. Solving murder.
1: Well, I don't know. We've never been able to, you know, put our hands
0: in it. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Okay, so uh, he read about the case online in a local paper, and he was really good at genealogical research. That was like his hobby. And so he started it when he was 10 years old, researching his own family lines. (laughs) And then he always loved puzzles, He always loved history, so it was a perfect fit, he said. He did mention that he got done with the family line when his dad asked, did I tell you I was adopted? (laughs) He's like, oh, no. He said said in an interview that would have been nice to know before he got done. (laughs) So uh, he went back to work. He discovered it was quite difficult to piece the puzzle together but he knew he solved it when he saw the picture of the man that looked like his dad. He knew it was his dad's dad and then DNA confirmed it. So when he saw that Very the, cool. Isn't that neat? You know, the dad not saying anything about being adopted kind of reminds me of some of the lack of information I got on our grease trip. Just saying. Anyway, moving on.
1: Mom was a standard. I I I was perfect. There were no <laughs> issues. <So. laughs> Moving
0: on. So when he saw the case, he felt bad, you know, obviously for the family and the police. He contacted them and he offered his services. And I'm not sure if it was then or later, but his hobby turned into a business complete with a website and a lot of clients. And especially tracking down those um, where they had breaks or weird things in their family line and they couldn't get past. So it doesn't sound like it was just criminal work. It was, you know, people were like, man, I'm stuck here. They would hire him to connect all the dots. Very cool. It is really cool. And uh, he said the main reason that he started it is he wanted to make money, but he's lazy. So he decided to do this versus working a job that required manual labor. (laughs) And he's what, 20, you said? Yeah. So typical teenager, like, you know, I can make money Uh doing this. I don't want to work at McDonald's or on a farm. Do you have his website? No, I don't. But um, for people that want to look it up, because I meant to do that, his name is Eric. And then Schubert is spelled S-C-H-U-B-E-R-T. So if people want to check that out, they can. Uh, Now, when he detected them on the little girl's case, he was only 18. So he contacts the police, and they're like, an 18-year-old? You know, they're—but they checked him out. They were impressed with his work. So they met him at a coffee shop on campus, you know, because, again, he was going to school. Eric showed up prepared for a job interview. (laughs) I think that's so cute. (laughs) He brought his portfolio for the investigators to see, and they offered to buy him coffee, but he said, I don't drink coffee, but I'll take an apple juice. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so he's I bet they were like, hmm, yep. okay. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he, they're like, the, so, quote, one of the detectives was like, this kid's going to drink apple juice here, and he wants to help us solve the homicide. You know, I mean. Right, not to mention like you have the stigma of cops being like coffee drinkers and you know that's their fuel to keep them going, and he's like, "No, but I'll take an apple juice like he's three years old, so right, that was really funny, and uh, so he went to work uh twenty hours a week for eighteen months, he researched every possible lead, he built fifty family trees. Until he zeroed in on two brothers, and in particular, the one that was a local bartender named James Forte. His name never came up in the investigation. Ever. It was not in the murder book. He had a criminal record of violent sexual assault. Unfortunately, he had died of a heart attack at the age of 38 in 1980. But... Hey. Yeah. Yeah. And... The the lead that this whiz kid developed was compelling enough for a judge to order uh, Forte's body to be exhumed so that they could test the DNA against the profile. And sure enough, he was the one that killed the little girl. So her case was solved February 3rd, 2021. Now, after they solved the case, they take Eric out for milkshakes. <laughs> <laughs> That's precious. I love it. And one detective said, quote, he was my partner in this investigation. He's top notch. And I was the big brother. So just a neat story. Like we don't get a lot of these when we do cases. And I mean, we did talk about, you know, the importance of safety at the hotel, you know, to help people. So it fits within our, our goal but this is, it was just too great. I mean, when I first watched this on Paula's On, I was like, what on earth? And then when I started doing the research, it's just such a feel good, you know, story with this young man with his apple juice and his milkshakes. So milkshake. I wonder if he likes chocolate, hopefully so great minds, you know, now, <laughs> so this wasn't his first case. So he was actually contacted in 2019, a week before he graduated high school to help with the case. He solved it too, but he couldn't share the details. So I don't know exactly what that was. But he has since then offered his services to other departments, including our case of Lee uh, in Council Bluffs. And he used to be a true crime enthusiast. He would watch Criminal Minds and he'd listen to podcasts, but he said, now he can't because it's his life. You know, and I've heard that, that When you work cases and you meet the families and you see the crime scene, you know, photos and you read about the horror, you know, it's for us telling the stories, the psychology, trying to help people with safety, it's totally different than when you're in there and you see how horrific this stuff is. So he can't do it anymore, you know, watching it. But anyway, so... Council Bluffs sent Lee's, uh, Lee ki- Lee's killer's DNA to Parabon, and then they paired up with Eric, who owned ES Genealogy by that time. So E uh, and then S as in Sam Genealogy. So I'm thinking he might still own that, but that may be his website, so I'll throw that out there. He did say it was the most puzzling case that he's done so far. There was a gap in the line that he could not get past, so he told detectives that there had to be a kid or kids somewhere in the gap that weren't recorded. So, in other words, you've got a family line, and there are some kids that have been born, but they were either given up for adoption, or you know something they were not recorded as someone's kids. So there was this gap, and uh, and he said that. What he feared, especially back in the day, that there was probably an unplanned pregnancy and then the baby was, you know, given away and that was very common. So they, he kept working and they were able to narrow down the suspects to two brothers. One of them was too young at the time to do the murder. So that makes me wonder, were there like two unplanned pregnancies, you know, or Maybe he was able to find one brother, but he knew it couldn't be him. But, so where, you know, it had to be a brother of this guy, but where's the brother? You know, so I don't know exactly where the gap was. But the other brother was named Thomas O. Freeman of West Frankfurt, Illinois. He was illegitimate. He was the missing link, and now he's their prime suspect. So DNA was collected from Freeman's daughter, and sure enough, he was the killer. But... One problem. He was killed weeks after Lee was killed. Oh, my. Here's a twist. Okay. So we now know he killed Lee. When they start investigating his background, because, you know, detectives don't get the DNA and then immediately go talk to the suspect. They get their DNA and then they investigate. They make sure everything fits because everybody thinks that everything centers around DNA. But when you're in a court case, there can be reasons your DNA is at the scene that has nothing to do with the crime. So they have to build their case still. So Freeman's body was discovered on October 30th in 1982 in a shallow grave near Cobden, Illinois. He had been shot multiple times. And he was 35 years old at the time, and police believe that he had been dead for about three months before he was discovered. So let me let me go back up here. So her her murder to refresh because we started recording this yesterday. Okay, so her murder she had uh, done. Yeah. So she had moved June 21st. That was a Monday. So then we had the 22nd, Tuesday, 23rd. So June 24th, she went on the boat ride. So we know she was killed either June 24th or early morning hours of June 25th. So if we have the fact that he was killed October and that would have put uh, they think he was there maybe three months. So that would have put him in July or August as being killed. So not long at all. Yeah. After July. Yeah. And she was at the end of June. So that that's interesting. Um, now, at the time when he murdered Lee, he was a truck driver. And he was in, some reports said he was in the motel uh, room next to Lee's the night she was murdered. I've not been able to verify that. Um, you know, I, I like to verify things. I couldn't verify that. So I would put that maybe in a rumor section. Um, cause I didn't find it in any of the, the shows I watched on it or any of the websites, except a couple people said that. And I've learned not to trust, you know, other people's websites cause they get facts wrong. But that's what some of the reports said or some of the blog posts said. Todd Weedham, Council Bluffs police chief, stated shot four times. He's dumped in a wooded area not far from where he lived. I'm not a big believer in coincidences. So we reached out to Illinois State Police and we got a hold of the sergeant in charge of Freeman's cold case investigation. In other words, his murder has never been solved. They believe that Freeman's murder was connected to Lee's. And their prime suspect is Jerry Nimke And they they actually Whoa. they actually found a connection. So after Jerry got out of prison, he went to college at Carbondale, Illinois. The campus was only fifteen miles from where Freeman was shot and buried, but that's all they have. They they can't connect him to Freeman anymore. Nimke died in March of 2019. They do have his DNA, um, but, I mean, they couldn't connect him to Freeman's murder. They really couldn't connect him to his wife's murder. But, like, coincidences? So, if it's true that he was staying in the hotel room next to her, then that could have been a stranger-on-stranger murder. I would expect a sexual assault. I would expect something like that because, you know what I mean, like— Typically, you don't just, oh, I'm going to stab this lady in the heart once. Yep. So, so, oh, go ahead.
1: You were probably going to say the same thing, but likely hired.
0: That's um, what I'm wondering.
1: Yeah. And then Jerry killed him. Yes. And
0: so much- I mean, You know, if you go with the coincidence of him being in the room and then he goes into the next room and without any passion, without, like, just surgically stabs her in the heart. And then he happens to be killed maybe a couple, two, three weeks after her at the earliest, probably. It's just too much, you know. And not only that, but being a truck driver, you're gone a lot. So I really don't see him being in one place at one time to develop a lot of enemies unless maybe he just was a hated person in his hometown or maybe he got in a you know fight and then later they found him. but here's what would make me think that's not the case. You only bury a body if you're trying to hide the crime. So if you go to like murders, like serial killers they like to they like to hide the bodies. Or they like to expose the bodies. It really just depends. So if they are wanting the shock and they want their handiwork seen, they expose the bodies. If they don't want people to catch on that there was a murder like Ted Bundy, then they hide the bodies. And we also know with Ted Bundy, he would go and spend time with the dead victims until their bodies were decayed, right? So with this situation, I don't see a bar fight or I don't see that type of crime where the person is in going to bury them, I see an execution and then he's buried so that he is not tied to the killer. If that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. Yep. And what is the deal with shallow graves? It's like, do you get tired of what's the
0: point? Exactly. do get it. And if you're in Illinois, I mean, I've been there in the summer. It still gets a lot of rain. I wouldn't think that the ground would be that hard to maybe dig an actual good grave. What I think is going on is probably they're in a hurry. So, I mean, I could just imagine them arranging to meet. So if he was shot at the scene, then that scenario would probably put him with his killer. Why are they meeting? in a remote area and then he shot right there. And then for time's sake, it's a shallow grave, get him in there, get out of there. Right. Um, if he was killed elsewhere, I would see, think that maybe there'd be a little bit of a deeper grave or that maybe he'd be taken to a place that was more remote. I don't know, but this is definitely an execution. So you have Lee executed and then you have the killer executed it just stinks. And the stench is Jerry Nimke. But I've seen yep. things where you think it's somebody and you know for a fact, and then it is not them. I watched a case last night where that was a case. So I don't know. Okay. So here's my thoughts. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Um, if the flower delivery was the ruse, then, how would uh, Freeman, the killer, know? He would only know to use that ruse if her husband told him. Okay.
1: 100%.
0: Yeah. Now, could the husband show up and have, you know, with the flowers to kill her? No. They were able to verify he had an airtight alibi in Michigan. There was no way he could have been there and killed her. So the the green stuff with the flower delivery um, connection there, you know, again, it just it points to the husband.
1: I, I still can't get over her laying in bed, um, one stabbed to the heart. Right. If if there was a ruse to get into the bedroom. Why would she just lay down?
0: That's a good question because it almost makes you wonder if someone got into her room while she was sleeping. Um, The only thing I can think is if she was told to get on the bed. Um, But that is, I mean, was there a struggle? It doesn't sound like it because it was just that single stab wound. So I don't have any of the crime scene photos to see if there were any other you know, bruising? Was there a fight? Um, none of the the stuff I researched told us if there was any type of struggle. I'm thinking if you've got a stab wound to the heart and there was a struggle, there's going to be more stabs. It's not going to be a clinical surgical. So that's, that's a good point. It, and why would a truck driver have green flower arrangement stuff on him? You know, Um, If the rooms are cleaned and vacuumed in between guests and no one else went in there with flowers, there's no report of any flower delivery. The only thing I can do is tie it to the killer. But I don't like the idea of why is she just laying there and there's no fight whatsoever. I think her hands were bound. Maybe she was knocked out. Yeah, it's. I didn't know it, it's a, it, it is a perplexing case. Of course, we know who the killer is. We're never ever going to know who killed Freeman and we're never going to know if Nimke was tied to it. So, you know, there could be, so he's a truck driver. Um, again, there could be a, a good possibility he was in the room next to her or maybe he saw her on the interstate and decide to follow her. It seems a little bit far-fetched um, to me, I, I've not heard of a single case where a trucker will stalk, uh, a victim and follow them in their semi. I have heard of truck drivers killing prostitutes because, uh, a lot of truck stops when I was on the road with dad, they had prostitutes that would go to the trucks. Um, I've even heard of, you know, truck drivers picking up hitchhikers and killing them in their rig and then disposing of the bodies, but I've never heard. Yeah you know, of a truck driver following a person in their truck to their hotel. So not saying it can't happen. Um, and then. Well, here's the thing. Jerry did hire him.
1: Um, the only reason that he would be staying next door likely um, was because Jerry gave him the information as to where she was.
0: Exactly. What bothers me, though, is how how can they can't tie them together beyond the fact that Jerry Nimke went to college 15 miles? You know what I mean? Like, there's just how did they know each other? And of course, yeah, that was back in the 80s. So there wasn't the trail that we would have today. You know, cell phone pings, things like that. Did
1: the ever have any um, criminal background?
0: I couldn't find any information on that to know if he did. And uh, now, um, it. I got here in my notes, so maybe she was sexually assaulted. And I forgot that up at the beginning, or I forgot that I even said that yesterday. Um, now, you could say that that was his first kill. So let's say he's a truck driver and he's staying at the hotel, like me and dad did that all the time. You know, if, if we had a layover between loads, we'd go to a hotel. So let's say he goes to the hotel and he sees her and he decides, okay, I'm going to sexually assault her. Was she his first victim? You would think there'd be a little bit more sloppiness if, if that was his first victim. So was it like beginner's luck, you know? It's just, it's a weird thing. The flower delivery green stuff is what gets me. I can't let that go as far as coincidence and, you know, Jerry working in a flower shop. You know, how did they gain access into the room? There was no forced entry. There had to be something that made her feel like it was safe to open up the door. Or maybe she was just naive and didn't think anything about that. Um, Maybe it was a stranger on stranger and he just did it but I don't know there. It just seems like there's too many things that connect the two together.
1: Now, as far as a safety aspect, the only, uh, the only other recommendation I would have in this situation is, especially if you're a single woman or, um, you know, woman with children, even don't open the freaking door. There's no reason for it. None. Yes. Don't be free. Don't so, engage.
0: That is so good. You know, that's why we say be smart, be rude. Don't be a victim. Oh, you're going to have to do both of them. Uh, yes. Mom's not here, (laughs) but you're, you're right. I mean, uh, I won't ever answer the door in a hotel room. And even if I think it's a staff member, I'm going to call down, you know, and ask why is a staff member at my door wanting to get in? If I've not ordered something to be brought up, you know what I mean? Like, there's no reason to open the door to a staff member if you've not requested new towels or whatever. There's no reason to open the door to a complete stranger. Um, you know, I uh, am firm in being rude. I mean, you know, even in the hotel, like you don't have to be rude to the staff, but don't be overly friendly because you never know. The staff could be jacked up too. It's like be, um, be unapproachable. Be that one where you have that strong boundary and they know you're not someone that they can, you know, push over or get you, you know, because you're too kind, you know, be that person because, I mean, it could save your life. So never open the door for anyone, especially if you've not ordered the towels, you've not, and you could even say, please leave them outside my door. Like you can tell them that. So that'd be a good idea.
1: By the way, when you were just saying, don't be approachable, et cetera, et cetera. I feel
0: like we, Nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> we are very not approachable for sure. <laughs> yep. If I see
1: anyone even um, taking a second glance, I'll like mad dog them.
0: Oh, yeah. The face, the very determined <laughs> gait. I mean, like when we walk, it's not, we're not, you know, looking around <laughs> like we're. Even in Greece, I noticed that we like I would have to purposely make myself stroll because it's like, let's do this, you know, and then I'm like ahead of the tour manager, you know. So, yes, we we don't smile at just everybody we see, especially if they're male. I mean, it's yes, the sunglasses are an added, by the way, you know, in um, the body language uh, work I do one of the most unapproachable other than being on the phone is wearing sunglasses and because it's like a mask because people can't see your eyes. And so wearing sunglasses can be very intimidating, especially to predators. And so when you have our faces with the sunglasses and no smile, it's like, you know, I'm going to move on. And by the way, this is actually researched. um, I think I talked about it in the last uh, season where they asked serial killers what was the first indicator they had a potential victim, and it was how they walked. It was like 90% said it was how they walked. They walked like a victim. Maybe we need to put that on our uh, shirts. Be smart. Be rude. Don't walk like a victim. <laughs> but what
1: exactly does that mean? What does a victim walk like? Just My like dad taught chill. me that.
0: Hmm. So, um When I was on the road with him, you know, like he would tell me, he'd say, "Lindlin, when you walk into a place, so it doesn't matter if it's a convenience store, if it's a restaurant, he said, you act like you own the place and you act like you know where the bathrooms are. He said he sees too many women walk in, they're kind of looking around. Um, He said, always go to the right first because that's typically where they are. And then if they're not over there, just look like you're grabbing a couple items until you can spot where they are. The other thing is they have um, like small body language. So they'll look down, they won't look you in the eye, they might be clutching their purse, and their, their walk isn't confident. And uh, they almost even have like a tourist type look as well, like they're lost and they don't know what they're doing. He also taught me, he said, especially uh, at night, is you always use your peripheral vision. You just turn your head slightly to see if anyone is behind you. And then in the day, look for, you know, shadows. But he said, you just act like you own the room and don't be nice. That's what he would tell me. And that's what I did. And it saved my life a few times. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The thing I'll do Um. I'll intentionally look around
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like do my. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs>
1: yep. I am not approachable.
0: <laughs> yes. So don't be approachable, I think is what, you know, which is going to be hard for those people out there that are super nice. That's what, yeah. Don't be approachable. Maybe we need to have a, (laughs) we need to have another shirt where we'll get like a cartoon figure of me and you with our sunglasses on with the unapproachable face. We'll put that on the t-shirt with don't be approachable.
1: Do you remember the little happy meth head whenever we went to go pick up salads that was like hopping around, not hopping, but like had a bit of a skip when he was walking and we're just like. (laughs) We're
0: looking <laughs> you know e- if he, you want to uh, epitomize how we look just think of the word b-i-t-c-h right i mean that is probably what would come to your mind but we're actually nice people kind of unless you annoy us you know we're pretty pretty nice i mean people said we were sweet on the greece trip which me and you i think both laughed. i know right. <laughs> it's like <laughs> we're like really
1: Okay. <laughs> Mom was getting all annoyed. I'm like, seriously? Yeah. It, that was crazy. She me, yeah. yeah, she told me again and I was like, as they should.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Tagline time. You can just say
1: hey. Oh, do I start?
0: Yep. You're the only one. It works. And then <laughs> Oh, be rude. <laughs> I I probably didn't explain it very well. And don't be a victim. No, I'm Shall I say the whole thing? <laughs> Outline of a murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? Ah!